Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. I want to start this morning with just a gush of gratitude for you. Um, So uh, the response to the rhubarb request has really been extraordinary. And uh, maybe my favorite part has been that not only were there those of you who were like immediately prepared to respond, like obviously you rhubarb is on your heart and mind. You've cooked with it recently. You were ready to go with a recipe. Um, and then there are those, and, and uh, like the person who like has a rhubarb recipe that's like taped to the hood of the stove. Obviously, that one gets used a lot. I love that. I love that you you know have sent me pictures of recipes out of your card file or pages out of um, your favorite cookbooks. And then oh, and then this morning, I just delighted to open my email again and see so many additional rhubarb recipes. And so, you know, the rhubarb recipe collection continues here. So don't don't hesitate to send your family recipe in um, whatever fantastic rhubarb uh, confection you have. um, Send it to me, Carmen at MyFaithRadio.com. And I just wanted to just wanted to share with you um, let me see if I can find this one just just right here. I just like I love this. I love this. My grandma baked with rhubarb a lot, so I'm really fond of it. But I have to admit, it's been a long time. Um, and and our family recipe, well, it involves some guesswork. No, so if you if you read through these, like I just I love how much of your family you're sharing in this, and I love how um, uh, yeah, I love how some of these things are described. Like this part of the recipe is like making a puzzle. <laughs> And then and then the things that you put in quote marks, which obviously are things like served warm. And my grandma would say, uh, poor, poor cream. And I think by that she meant half and half. Like, like, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for sharing um, in this in this sort of summer fun. I intend on Tuesday to have a little taste and see Tuesday roundup. Um, so let me just go ahead and tell you, I have a couple of recipes now for rhubarb pudding, which I have discovered is like bread pudding, but with rhubarb. Um, I have rhubarb tort, rhubarb bars, um, obviously. Oh, and, and for those of you who uh, let me know, oh, I've got rhubarb cake, obviously rhubarb pie, uh, lots, lots of recipes for rhubarb crisp, but you should still send yours because I might need yours. And then we have the uh, rhubarb highlight dessert with meringue. Um, on and on and on. The list is long, and it's really fun, and I genuinely appreciate it. It is amazing how many of you are concerned after you send a recipe that you'll say, that really does sound like a lot of sugar. Like, it's interesting. <laughs> Apparently, yeah, sugar. These are really sugar recipes that also include rhubarb. So there you go. It's been really, really uh, fun. Okay, one uh, quick headline before we get to our conversation with Ike and Erdemir. Uh, He's a former member of the Turkish parliament, and he is joining me to talk about uh, the nation of Turkey's conversion of the Hagia Sophia into a mosque. So that story is up next. But I wanted to highlight for you, in case you hadn't seen it yet, 
um, this story about the Smithsonian, um, which on one of its websites had posted this uh, white chart, anti-white chart. And if you don't know anything about this, it's actually worthy of consideration. We will pick this up again next week when we've had a little more time to digest uh, the, the fullness of the story. But, um, but let me just say, when you think about um, the characteristics of the nuclear family, self-reliance, rational thinking, hard work, respect for authority, planning for the future, protecting property, um, personal decision-making, being polite... Um, are those attributes of being white? Does that describe whiteness? Because that's what this chart on the Smithsonian's website said. And so um, we're going to continue to have these conversations um, about characterizations and culture and the way we as Christians not only need to think about things, but how we need to be the people who help the culture today not only understand itself, but God's vision. God's vision um, for what it means not only to be human, but to be human together. All right, we got to take one quick break. And then uh, when we come back, Iken Erdemir will be here. He's the senior director of the Turkey program at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies in Washington, D.C. He's also a former member of the Turkish parliament. We'll be right back. He is the senior director of the Turkey program at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. He's also a former member of the Turkish parliament. Iken, welcome again to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. Always a pleasure to join you. So our topic this morning, and forgive me if I do not pronounce it accurately, um, is the Hagia Sophia. Talk with us. uh, Assume we know little about the history of this, uh, this building Um, and then assume we know nothing about what's going on now. Uh, Sure. This is uh, one of the most important Christian monuments in history. It has been since its uh, building in the 6th century uh, AD. It has been uh, the seat of Orthodox Christianity, Eastern Christianity, and uh, It was converted into a mosque in 1453 after the Ottoman Sultan Mehmet II captured Constantinople, which today we know as Istanbul. And in 1934, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, the founding father of the the secular Republic of Turkey, transformed that Hagia Sophia mosque into a museum. And that, of course, was a very important symbolic message. He not only abolished the Sultanate and the Caliphate, but he also wanted to build a secular republic of equal citizens and end the hierarchy between Muslim overlords and Christian and Jewish subjects. So Hagia Sophia as a museum was then a a neutral building that was open to everyone, basically. And it no longer signified a sectarian hierarchy or domination of subjects. And this is exactly what Erdogan, Turkey's Islamist strongman, is trying to reverse with his decision on July 10th. So by converting Hagia Sophia into a mosque, he is basically reimposing Ottoman hierarchies between 
the ruling Muslim majority and Christian subjects. I I, I try, Iken, to help listeners understand um, who do not have an Eastern worldview um, and maybe do not know much about Eastern and therefore Orthodox Christianity, um, but know much about Western Christianity. This would be like uh, the Vatican. For Roman Catholics, this would be like the Vatican being converted to a mosque. That's a very accurate way of putting it, because ultimately what I have to add is, you know, Constantinople, the modern-day Istanbul, has been the seat of the ecumenical patriarchate. So the Greek Orthodox patriarch, who still lives and resides in Turkey, in Istanbul, is the primus inter pares, meaning he is the first among equals of all the Orthodox patriarchs around the world. And he lives at great risk to his life and community because once the seat of Orthodox Christianity, today Istanbul has around only a thousand Orthodox Christians left, Greek Orthodox Christians left. And if you're wondering how that happened, uh, there has been a number of pogroms and forced expulsions uh, as recent as 1955, meaning even during the Republican times, there have been you know, mob attacks and lynchings and pogroms targeting Turkey's Orthodox Christians. And hence, today, the ecumenical patriarch uh, has only a thousand members of his community, of his flock. And to make matters worse, um, Turkey has shuttered the Halki Seminary, which is the main theological seminary, which used to produce, uh, you know, the clergy that would one day become, you know, archbishops and patriarchs. And uh, this shows that Hagia Sophia is not just about transformation of a monument from museum into a mosque. It's not just about potential damage to a world heritage site. But more importantly, it is about the severe restrictions on the rights and freedoms of Christians in Turkey. And for those in the audience wondering, yes, Turkey has been a NATO member since the 1950s. Turkey has been a treaty ally with the West, but under current President Erdogan's rule for the last 18 years, an Islamist president, Turkey has been increasingly adversarial, not only to its Western allies, but also increasingly oppressive toward its minority, religious minority citizens. And hence, in this year's United States Commission on International Religious Freedom report, Turkey was the only NATO member to be placed in the special watch list for its egregious violations of religious freedoms. I'm talking with Eichen Erdemir. Uh, he is the senior director of the Turkey program at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies in Washington, D.C. Uh, you can find him 
um, online uh, on Twitter at Iken. It's A Y K A N underscore Erdemir, E R D E M I R. You can also obviously find him at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Iken and I are going to continue this conversation in just a moment. There have been Christians in what we know as modern-day Turkey since the absolute earliest days of Christianity on the day of Pentecost. There were Jews from Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, gathered in Jerusalem. Many of them became eyewitnesses to the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Peter then subsequently preached a sermon, um, and many of the 3,000 who converted and believed in Jesus that day uh, upon returning home, obviously established Christian communities. Some of those very first Christians were in a place called Anatolia, um, and the very earliest of the church fathers um, records the existence of these Christian communities in what we know as modern-day Turkey. Obviously, uh, creation makes reference to what we know as modern-day Turkey. Two of the four rivers referenced in the creation account have their source in eastern Turkey, on and on and on and on. Um, We are talking about uh, the cradle of faith, and we are also talking about Islamization, and we are talking about um, a nation uh, that has been in very recent history what we would call as Republican. We would recall it Democrat. We would call it Democratic. We'd certainly call it pluralistic, and it is no longer. Joining me today, Iken Erdemir. Uh, from the Turkey program. He's a senior director there at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. I can um, talk with us about what Turkey was under Ataturk and since then, and then where we are now under Erdogan. Now, I think it's really difficult today to imagine the great transformation the Turkish people uh, have went through under the reforms of Ataturk, you know, because Turkey was built on the ashes of the Ottoman Empire, which was, you know, the seat also of the caliphate. And it was basically a hierarchical system where Christians and Jews were tolerated, but as subjects, as lesser subjects. And Ataturk destroyed all that. You know, his vision was to have a a republic uh, with equal citizens, where mosque and state are separate. And he initiated rapid reforms. And as you can imagine, it's no easy feat. Today, we see all the challenges we have with building, you know, working democracies in the Middle East. So imagine doing this back in the 1920s and 30s, when the world was not necessarily going through a democratic transition. Now, what we have today is as radical a reversion of that as possible. For 18 years, uh, Turkey's strongman Recep Tayyip Erdogan has been socially engineering Turkey into his Islamist vision. And it's not just a nation-state vision. It's a transnational vision and a Muslim Brotherhood vision to set up similar you know, Sunni Muslim majoritarian regimes in the Middle East and beyond. And uh, to to make this more concrete, you know, when I talk about social engineering, it's not just the Islamicized society, but it's also an active pushing out of Christianity. For example, there has been a recent report about how the Turkish government has systematically 
denied residence permits, entry visas, or work permits to Protestant church workers in Turkey. And this is such a cruel policy. It not only pushes all the Protestant faith leaders out of Turkey, but it even harasses them when they have a Turkish spouse. For example, the Turkish government systematically went after the foreign spouses and many Christian workers and missionaries had to leave Turkey to basically continue their family life. Otherwise, the families would be divided. So this is a very cruel, targeted policy to decimate Turkey's Protestants as well. And we have also seen similar attempts uh, with other Christian denominations. You know, we just talked about Hagia Sophia and Orthodox Christians. Turkey's Syriac Christians have similar problems. And it's not just limited to Christians. You know, anti-Semitism is rampant as well. So this is all part of the same Islamist authoritarian package. Icon, when we think about the vision of, of positively of a secular or pluralistic culture, talk with us about the Turkey you long to see. Now, I think the key issue here is the, the real loss you know, we Turks feel is that Turkey could have been a beacon for the world's numerous Muslim majority nations to prove to them that Islam and democracy, Islam and free markets, Islam and pluralism can coexist, that they too can build polities where everyone is an equal citizen, regardless of their faith, that all faiths and all temples and churches deserve the same respect, and that the West and the East, you know, Christians and Muslims and Jews and others can all live peacefully. Hence, what Turkey has lost is not just its own pluralism in the making, and the footnote here is Turkey was not perfect, but it was a bold attempt to try to build something better. So we have not only lost pluralism in the making in Turkey, but we have also lost a significant model for Syria, for Iraq, for Egypt, for Indonesia, for Morocco. So basically, I think that's the real toxic effect of Turkish President Erdogan. And as I repeat, it's not just his Turkey-based vision. This is a global Muslim Brotherhood movement, which is a majoritarian, sectarian, ideological, you know, zealous movement, which tried to, you know, hold onto power in Egypt, which is still actively trying to take over, you know, Libya and Jordan and Tunisia. Uh, and uh, I think this is... Uh, what many policymakers in the West miss, that there is a new global endeavor uh, to reimpose these hierarchies that challenge and threaten people's most fundamental freedom, that is, freedom of religion or belief. Icon, thank you so much for joining us today. I want to direct people um, to... 
the Foundation for Defensive Democracy's website. It is FDD. So think of the words Foundation, Defense, and Democracy, FDD.org. Um, there is there is this intimate relationship between uh, democratic freedom and and religious expression and our freedom not only of conscience but of um, of living out our beliefs in in the common life. So, uh, Icon, thank you as always for joining us. Uh, we will continue to pray for the people of Turkey, and we thank you for continuing to help us understand what's happening there. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure. Uh, Absolutely. We'll be right back. Okay, in uh, in other news, a kangaroo was on the loose in Fort Lauderdale. His name is Jack. He was uh, captured by the police and placed in a squad car. That is not a picture I have yet seen on Twitter. But if you want a little uh, joyful um, story, just in terms of, like, something... Something a little lighter on this Friday. Um, you could just go search for the hashtag Free the Roo. Roo is R-O-O, Free the Roo, and uh, read a little bit about Jack and his the challenges he now faces because Fort Lauderdale is not, quote, zoned for kangaroos. See, sometimes the law has not caught up with, caught up with things. Okay, next up, Catherine Freeman will be here from Think Christian. If you've never visited th- thinkchristian.com, um, this is a website I want you to be aware of. Um, the 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 constellation of individuals who write at Think Christian are pretty diverse, and um, and so you're going to be exposed to Christians who are thinking, applying the mind of Christ to the matters of the day, sometimes in directions and areas that you and I have not thought about yet. So uh, Catherine is going to talk a little bit with us about thinking Christian in relationship to pop culture, particularly um, some pop culture pieces that help us lament racial injustice. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Okay, if you're listening, then we would very much appreciate you participating in our listener survey. It is posted at MyFaithRadio.com. You can just click on it over there on the right-hand side, or you can just text the word SURVEY to 877-933-2484. We really do appreciate your feedback. Uh, I just, um, I want to know what you're thinking about the things that we're talking about and how we're talking about them, uh, how it is influencing you in the way you walk your faith out into the world that God so loves. So if you're listening, please participate in the listener survey at myfaithradio.com or by texting the word survey to 877-933-2484. This is Max Licato, Giants. We must face them, yet we need not face them alone. Focus first and most on God. Read 1 Samuel 17 and list the observations David made about Goliath. I find only two, one to Saul and one to Goliath's face. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David asked nothing about Goliath's skill, age, or the weight of his spear, or the size of his shield. But he gives much thought to God, the armies of the living God, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel. In all, the God thoughts outnumber Goliath thoughts nine to two. How does this ratio compare with yours? Is your list of blessings four times as long as your list of complaints? Are you four times as likely to describe the strength of God as you are the demands of your day? 
That's how you face a giant. Catherine Freeman joining me now. She writes at thinkchristian.com and she tweets as Catherine Annette. Catherine, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, absolutely. Let's um let's start with this. When you uh, when you hear me say she writes for thinkchristian.com, what does it mean to you to think Christian? Yeah, I think it means bringing my Christian principles, biblical principles to um, every thought and every um, everything I watch to look at it through the lens of, is this biblical? How can I um, apply this to my life and living out my faith? So you are, um, you know, every single person is unique and has this very interesting uh, journey uh, where they arrive at where they are today and why we're listening to their particular voice in a conversation. Um, You are currently, if I'm correct, working on a Master of Divinity degree at Baylor University. Um, You also hold degrees from the University of Texas School of Law and Texas A&M University, which we could ask, like, how, how does a person be both an Aggie and a Longhorn at the same time? But we won't we won't go there. Talk, talk with us instead about, um, for you, this intersection of law and gospel. And then I want to talk about, you know, your lived experience as an African-American woman and the conversations that we're having as a culture today. Yeah. So um, I went to law school because I wanted to work in public policy. Um, and I did that for about 10 years. Um, the last five years, I worked for the Baptist General Convention of Texas doing public policy for them. Um, and I always kind of viewed my love of and my interest in public policy and justice as sort of my own ministry, my call on my life. And I realized in working um, kind of at the intersection of faith and poli- public policy, I had a lot of policy knowledge and understanding just from having done that for 10 years and taking classes in law school. Um, but I realized um, from the faith perspective that I was a little weak, that a lot of what I knew or understood um, was based on secondhand knowledge. And so I wanted to be able to do that work myself. Um, and so that's really what brought me to seminary is just wanting to be better in how I communicate about how does faith, um, how does the Bible, how does scripture inform how we think about justice and public policy. So, uh, Catherine, and again, I'm talking with Catherine Freeman. You guys can find her at thinkchristian.com. Um, Catherine, I'm wondering if there are specific places where, you know, as you have been engaging in this work at seminary, you have had some aha moments where you're like, aha, that is where that idea comes from, or that changes the way may, maybe you approach something or thought about something in the past. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I can think of a couple. A lot of reading in the Old Testament, I think. Um, I took a class, a Hebrew readings class this summer in Malachi, um, and I think that really was so helpful in reading in Hebrew and kind of understanding the culture in which Malachi was speaking um, about really he is condemning the the community, the community leaders, because they have failed to in their sort of orthopraxy, how they live out their faith among their community. They've really been failing um, to pursue justice. And so that was helpful for me because I think that um Yeah, like I think that I hadn't really thought about um, 
how scripture talks about justice across communities and systems. Like I understood personal individual sin, um, but like I think reading through scripture in the Old Testament, I see a lot of that there were a lot of times prophets were addressing sort of community-wide um, issues, which is helpful, I think, speaking to our current moment. Um, and then I think also too, the other thing was, I felt like I had always um, a little skewed towards um, the Old Testament and the prophets as if Jesus didn't care about poverty and justice and, and that Paul didn't speak to those issues. Um, and so I think one of the big things that changed for me is seeing that no, Jesus and Paul both speak to um, about how to care for the poor. And Paul spends a lot of time teaching um, how to be this new community of Gentiles and Jews and what does it mean to be reconciled and follow Christ together. And so that was something I think I changed my mind on. I'm I'm a much more um, appreciative of, of Paul and the hard, hard work <laughs> that he did over the course of his ministry and sort of forming the first century church. So thank you for indulging me on those questions. I wanted uh, the audience listening to know uh, to know a little bit about you and just how rich and deep uh, you, the voice is that you're bringing to the conversation that we are now going to have, and that's going to be um, about pop culture and and how we as Christians can actually learn some things from what pop culture is offering up in terms of lament, particularly when it comes to racial justice and injustice. So let's take a very brief break, and then I'm going to continue my conversation with Catherine Freeman. We'll be right back. Continuing my conversation with Catherine Freeman, you can read what Catherine is writing at thinkchristian.com. Catherine, let me just go ahead and confess and admit to you that many of the things that you write about at Think Christian um, are are people and things happening in the culture, uh, pop culture, I, I have no exposure to and have never even heard of. So uh, let, let's talk about um, a rapper named Childish Gambino, or that's, his, that's what he goes as. Um, like, I'd never even heard of that person. So when we start having the conversation about pop culture and how we see in, in these religious themes in pop culture and where there is either affirmation, confirmation, or you know, or, you know, or a call out um, to Christianity. Talk with us about all of the things that we're probably not seeing as white Christians. Yeah, I mean, I think that it is a useful tool. Um, I think there are some, especially I think when it comes to sort of African-American experience, some things don't translate, obviously, because just we have like a, there's not like, he's Charles Gambino is not a Christian. Um, but like that particular piece is about a video he did two years ago called this is America, um, for a song. And basically it is about how we as Americans have been very comfortable with like essentially a culture of death of mass death, um, death of African-Americans. There's a scene in the, the video where it's a gospel choir singing and they're, then they're killed and kind of a harken back to what happened in Charleston um, at the Mother Emanuel AME Church. And it just is kind of an indictment um, of, yeah, the culture of death and desensitivity um, that we have as, um, that we've accepted as a culture when it comes, 
I think broadly, but I think specifically when it comes to African-Americans and then thinking for me, for Christians, how do we respond to that? How do we respond to, like, are we okay with that? Um, and I think in that piece, I talk a lot about Nehemiah and what Nehemiah observed as, you know, exiles returning and then how he, you know, felt like it was the call of God on his life to help rebuild what was broken. Um, and so I think that it can be um, a tool. I think it can give you a window into, you know, maybe if you live in a predominantly, you know, white area um, and you're not exposed to these things, I think you know, these types of um, movies or videos or, you know, reading these articles on, on Think Christian, I think helps open you up to maybe a world that you're not going to be regularly exposed to. Right. We may have gone to see Just Mercy. Um, in, in all likelihood, we did. Right. But that's not enough. That's not that's it's just not enough. Talk with us a little bit. Um, you have another piece on this particular list. And I'm I'm referencing here actually a roundup article that Josh Larson put together called 10 Pieces of Pop Culture Lamenting Racial Injustice. And um, and Catherine has a couple of pieces that are featured in this list of 10. And so in addition to the themes we might look for in Black Panther um, or Just Mercy, which are pretty easy, those are pretty easy for white folks to find, um, you may not you may not see the less obvious uh, things that, like Catherine uh, picks up in Black Klansmen. First of all, remind people what B- Black Klansmen is uh, in terms of, of pop culture. And then talk about the less obvious vic- villain. Yeah, so um, Black Klansmen was a movie by Spike Lee. I think it's like three or four years old now. Um, but it's essentially about the first African-American hired um, in a police department. I can't remember the city. Colorado Springs might be in Colorado. Um, and basically how he infiltrates um, the Klan at that time um, and stops, thwarts a bomb, um, a bomb attempt, and basically how he convinces his his white coworkers that the Klan is still a problem and they they should be monitoring their activities. Um, and then the piece is about I think oftentimes when you watch that movie, the focus is on, or just generally I think in conversations about racism, about obvious racism. So obviously the villains are. Um, the Klansmen who are pretty bold in their hatred of African-Americans. They are attempting to kill this particular African-American leader. Um, but what I was struck by was his boss in the movie um, was very, um, at first a little resistant to hiring an African-American because, you know, there had never been one before. But I think then when he brought him the project around um, monitoring um, the Klan, he kind of was also resistant. He kind of downplayed them as a threat. Um, And I think that there's this kind of thing that happens, particularly with white Christians, where it's very easy to see sort of the Klan-ish racism and everybody can rightly condemns that but the sort of like passive acceptance of that kind of injustice i think it's like a lot harder to understand and to want to actively fight and so that piece was really about what does it really mean to stand alongside of someone who's experiencing racism even if you maybe don't 100 percent um, agree or see it or it doesn't affect you what does it mean to be supportive what does it mean to to fight against that and not take a sort of passive stance and not also to leave sort of African-Americans alone in the fight against 
racism and, and racial injustice. And sort of the idea was to just kind of broaden our lens of like, um, and thought about what is really required. Is it only that we speak out, you know, against the Klan or is there some responsibility sort of to address our sort of maybe more um, casual or more latent prejudices um, that can sometimes seep into our thinking? So I am working my way through uh, a, a 2019 book right now called um, How to Be Anti-Racist. My guess is you are you are familiar with um, with the work of Ibram Kendi. Um, and there's like a bit of a checklist in there, which I have found profoundly helpful, right, just in terms of understanding my own thoughts and history and sometimes inactions. Um, you know, part of it, I think, Catherine, for many people is just beginning to understand the definition of racist or racism and and to learn to stop saying I'm not a racist or I'm not racist and to begin understanding that um, if I'm not actively anti-racist then pretty much today I'm racist yeah there's that's really a challenging idea for a lot of people um, one analogy that I found really helpful um, and having that conversation, um, it's from the book, um, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? But basically, this the woman that wrote that book talks about, um, you know, if you're on a moving elevator, sort of picture moving elevator in an airport when we could all fly <laughs> before the pandemic, but on the moving elevator, right? Like if you stand still on a moving elevator, you are still being carried to the end point in destination. You can walk that direction faster, more quickly, or you can walk against that. And I think what Ibram Kendi um, is, is, is positing is that, you know, because of sort of the structure, sort of some of the decisions that were made, yes, prior to our lifetime, we're all sort of on this moving elevator. And if we don't actively turn around and walk in the opposite direction, even if we are not aggressively running or going towards, you know, this, the sort of the North gate, we're going to end up at the North gate. And so I think that I, I find that helpful to think through when you talk about racism and anti-racism, what he is positing is, yeah, like if we don't actively go against, we, even if we don't intend to, even if we stand still and, and, you know, we, but we don't change or dismantle or go against the things that have been built, we will still end up at a destination of which we don't want to go. Catherine Freeman, um, thank you so much for beginning the conversation today. Really, really appreciate it. Um, you, uh, you remind me in terms of, of your winsome spirit and your ability to articulate your positions, you remind me a lot of my friend Trillia Newbell. So uh, I hope the two of you are... Um, yes, are, I love Right. Yeah, I know. I, I just admire her so greatly. So um, thank you so much for joining us today. I look forward to continuing the conversation with you in the future. Thank you. Thank you. That's Catherine Freeman. You can find her at thinkchristian.com. We'll be right back. All right. Quick shout out here at the end of the day and the end of the week to Nat Becker. Thank you so much for producing the show this week, Nat. Anytime. All right. We really appreciate it. We look forward to having Paul Perot back from vacation as well. Over the weekend, do the survey at MyFaithRadio.com. Text the word survey 877-933-2484. Have a great weekend. God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. 
If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.